We're in the season of Easter between for the next, uh, well, until May 15th at Pentecost, and, um, and the, the church typically does the 24th Psalm. Um, you know, yeah, we do the 24th Psalm on this Sunday. So we'll do it together. I'll do some parts, and you do some parts. So let's prepare our hearts. The Lord's is the earth and its fullness, the world and those who dwell in it. It's He who set it on the seas, on the rivers, He made it firm. Who shall climb the mountain of the Lord? Who shall stand in His holy place? Blessings from the Lord shall he receive, and right reward from the God who saves him. Such are the people who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. O gates, lift high your heads, grow higher ancient doors. Who is this King of glory? O gates, lift high your heads, grow higher ancient doors. Who is this King of Glory? And we all said, "Amen." Well, we are in the Easter season. This is the first Sunday after Easter, and uh, we are in a season where we're heading towards the the uh, season, uh, the Pentecost event, fifty days after Easter, in which Jesus ascends into heaven. And the church is left with the Spirit to guide it and empower it to change the world. And we are still really, in so many respects, living in that season. And uh, so I'm wrapping up on my series of preaching, and Pastor Garrett Leahy will take over next week for a while, and he's going to be preaching through the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, that, that part of the New Testament where we record actually what happened in that first church so we can be inspired about what we're supposed to be. Um, so if you've kind of been here for a while, you know that during Lynn I've sort of been doing these pretty kind of heavy academic sort of things, and I gave you even a study sheet today because I'm taking one last hit at you. I'm just saying, so that's kind of a threat, uh, but I'm going to give you one last thing. I don't have any blanks to fill in or anything. It's just merely notes because... Um, we are talking about some philosophy and so forth today, and I wanted to let you have a, a clue in on the thing. But I'm going to take my one last shot here at you on trying to get something, something rather thick and try and make it simple. So we'll see if I succeed or not and whether or not um, we can pull this thing off. I want, we're talking about the good life, and I want you to consider these words of Jesus talking about the good life. And I'll just tell you up front, you're going to see two aspects of the good life, one about sacrifice and one about fulfillment as we read these texts, or I'll read them to you. Jesus says, the thief, comes only to still, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly, John chapter 10. Then Jesus told his disciples, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. Those who lose their life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit them if they gain the whole world but forfeit their life? Or what will they give in return for their life? Matthew chapter 16. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. John chapter 6. 
Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John chapter 8. And then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, curing every disease and every sickness. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Matthew chapter 9. And the devil said to him, If you're the Son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. And Jesus answered him, It's written, One does not live by bread alone. Luke chapter 4. What is the good life and how do we get it? And since we're in church, I think you're safe to assume that we're going to be talking about a Christian good life. But I want to paint a broader picture than that, by the way. According to Jesus, the good life seems to be both world-denying, deny the world, and yet full of bread and full of healing and words of life and people hanging on every word of Jesus. There was an attractiveness about Jesus. It wasn't, and you'd think like, well, if he only talked about world denying, that doesn't sound very attractive. But for some reason, it was extremely attractive. It was because he was healing people, because he seemed to breathe life into things, because he was the Messiah, the expected Savior. He had hope, and it was very real in the healing of sick people, and yet he was saying you must give up and deny this ordinary life. It was both. The Christian life appears to be about forgiving, reconciling, being grace-filled. It's holy. It's miraculous. It's transcendent. And yet it's concerned with ordinary bread, clothing, warmth, health, and shelter. Both ordinariness and then transcendence. And I'm giving you on the half sheet of paper there a couple of definitions about secular and transcendent and what those things mean because I'm using thick 10-cent words there. See, Jesus is saying, Jesus in his ministry, there's a woman who's caught in adultery. He does not condemn her, but instead he says those famous words, let him who's without sin cast the first stone. Forgiveness is a part of the, of the good life. He raises back to life a little girl who had died, giving her back to her mother and father. Can you imagine that if you had your little girl in front of you lying dead? And then Jesus would come and give that girl back to you? You know how incredible would that be? That's the good life. It's the life of love. I can't even imagine. On the other hand, Jesus tells a rich young ruler to deny himself. In other words, sell everything you have. Give the money to the poor and you'll come follow me and have the real life. Charity. Charity seems to be a part of the good life. But there are other options other voices for what is the good life. Besides the other world religions, and I'm not going to, to condemn world religions or anything like that. As a matter of fact, you'll probably be confused about what I even think about the thing today. Besides the other world religions, there is the secular good life. Secular, that ordinary, mundane life that we all live in and swim in all day long. The secular good life and this is what it defaults to, everyone. I think this may be on the sheet as well. Meaningful work, family, health, wealth, longevity, ease, no pain. I didn't make the list up. It comes from philosophy. The secular good life is meaningful work, family, health, wealth, longevity, live for a long time, ease, and no pain. Nothing wrong with any of that, right? 
Uh, that's good stuff. It's all good stuff. And you'll never hear me saying that's bad stuff. Who doesn't want to live a long time? Who doesn't want to not have pain? That sounds pretty good. That's a good life. If you can get it. This is the basic default good life that all of us have been grown up in. We've all just been immersed in this. It is not, however, it is not a transcendent, a vertical life. It is not spiritual. It's not uh, holy. It's not transcendent. There's that word again. Instead, the good life that we are all taught is a very horizontal or a very flat life. It's a very um, uh, material life. What you see is what you get. It's food right in front of you. There's nothing fanciful or, or mystical or mythical about the ordinary life. And I mean myth in that sort of classic definition. You know, a myth is something that's absolutely true, but may or may not ever happened historically. Lord of the Rings or something like that, right? The ordinary life, though, is not mythical at all or mysterious. It's very flat and horizontal. And it's good. And if we compare the secular ordinary life to the words of Jesus that we read just a few moments ago, you can easily see if you're perceptive, you're going to begin to pick up that Jesus is in deep quarrel with the ordinary life. It's not that he denies the ordinary life because he did heal people and and eat with people and so forth and hung out with sinners and tax collectors and so forth. It's not that he's denying ordinary life. He is saying there is another aspect of life that is horizontal, that is transcendent, that is divine. Christianity is in deep quarrel with the secular ordinary life. Since uh, January... I've been asking these questions, what is the good life, um, and what makes life good? I, I, I don't know how to explain it, but this is part of my job. Part of my job is to think, like, where are we going? What are we doing? Is this making sense? Should we still believe in Jesus? Yes, I have to ask that question. All of us on staff and all of us pastors ask those questions. Are we leading the people in the right way? What are we What are we selling? What is the good life? And so I've been reading and thinking about this, and I've got to tell you, I've got stacks of books around me, and all of them are pretty doggone thick. And I'm not sure I understand them all, but I have to because I'm in school and I have to work on this sort of thing. That's what got me into this in the whole first place was class. But what I've come to understand is that this word, the good life, I just thought it was kind of a nice phrase. It's not. It's actually a very technical phrase that's been used by Aristotle, Plato, Mr. Socrates, all the way to Huxley, to, you know, um, Nietzsche, to Karl Popper, to Charles Taylor, and all the way down the line, the good life is technical for what is the meaning of life. I just thought it was kind of a snappy phrase. All of philosophy is trying to figure out what the good life is. What I discovered along the way in my studies is that all world religions are attempting to describe and uh, present and, and provide the good life. I've discovered that all world religions are about embracing the good life. Buddhism, the good life comes from overcoming uh, the materialism of life, and therefore you get the good life. Islam is about submission to God and being free from the encumbrances of sin, and being one with God. 
Christianity is all about embracing the love of God and living in a love world based on God with reconciliation and and, uh, atonement and forgiveness. Now, not everyone then, as we all well know, believes in religion or God or even Christianity or especially Christianity. So here are a few options, and I gave them to you on here trying to give you a little bit about what I've been studying lately and see which one of these you fit into, and I put it on a spectrum. The, and I try not to be too much of a caricature about it because you'll tell that the last one's my favorite and the first one's not. But the very, very first one here, I just see if you can wear this label or not. It's okay if you do. The rational science as faith atheist. I put hyphens in between it because it's kind of all one word. There, it says this, no, I don't believe in superstition and myths. God doesn't fit in science or rational materialism, so I do not believe in God or religions or spiritual or any other fairy tales out there. This is the one that says, and I make this out to be this way, that it says the, the end, the good life, is purely rational and uh, material. And if it doesn't fit into science, then I don't believe in it. Okay? Now, I, and some of you are raising your eyebrows, perhaps, if you're with me, and you're thinking, like, what do you mean as faith? When did science become a faith? And then your neighbors are sitting there sort of smirking, snickering at you, and if you're younger, you'll say, like, dude, science is a religion, man, <laughs> for some. And it, they've turned it into a faith. And uh, they believe in it dogmatically, because and just to make a, in, in a little bit of a bunny trail here, science never arrives at an answer, right? Remember scientific method? In school, science never arrives at an answer. It keeps asking the question. If you said, I concluded, you're a scientist or an engineer or something, you're a researcher, you concluded, this is what I found. The next researcher comes along and says, oh, yeah, well, let's test your hypothesis. And then they say, well, we found it slightly askew, or you're totally wrong, or we validated it. But no scientist, no real scientist ever says, I found the truth. Science never finds the truth. It's that proverbial frog jumping halfway to the end of the log. So anybody who comes out and says, you know, God's not science and uh, rationalism, then actually isn't being a very good scientist. So I'm just kind of throwing that out there. You'd at least have to open up the option and say, well, it could be. It could be. Here's the next one. The honest, pragmatic, uh, the honest pragmatist. The honest pragmatist. This is a secular practical person. Yes, I believe in God. I'm I'm sure it's all good, but I can't for the life of me figure out why I would need God or faith in my everyday life. Just oil and water. Like, I'm sure there is a spiritual world out there and some divine being or creator or I don't know what. What's it got to do with me? I I have a good life. I don't need anything. Now, you can see like where fire and brimstone preachers want to try and scare the hell out of you because that's the only way they're going to create this tension and disparity so that you'll actually become religious. They, they have to find some way to, to create tension. Unfortunately, it's so toxic that, you know, it destroys people. But for your average person, they're like, I'm fine. I, I, God, no God, does it matter? Here's the next one. The secular Christian, and I'm going to use a technical term here, thin religion. It means it's thin. But here's what, <laughs> that was brilliant, wasn't it? Here's a secular Christian. I believe in God. I want to rearrange my life after God, Jesus, Bible, the whole, uh, whole shemir, the whole shemang. But I can't figure out how to get it done. 
I'm a secular Christian. I'm thin. I don't like being admitting that I'm thin, but then again, maybe I don't care because I can't figure it out. This is what I think of when I hear of, um, let's say it's in Syria or Egypt, and sometimes I hear about Christians over there, but they really mean an ethnic or political faction, and I think, oh, that's thin Christianity. They may not, they actually kind of have a belief, but it actually is more like a political platform. Like, do they actually have any faith? And I kind of make some sort of bad, vain judgment in my head about them. But I'm like, well, that's not, I think to myself, that's not authentic Christianity because it's not thick, it's thin. And here's the thick one, this is the next one. The modern, now this is my favorite one, so I made it sound the best. The modern sacramental saint. I know all that the world has to offer. In other words, I'm very familiar with the good life and I'm familiar with materialism and I'm familiar with what's on television. And I'm a part of this world. I don't have all the answers. I don't really believe Rather, I sense God. I don't understand creeds or dogma. I mean, not like I don't, can't read them and figure out what they're saying, but, but I can't own them. But I believe them. I pray. I live. I see Jesus. And then to quote Julian of Norwich 500 years ago, I look at you. I look at God. I keep looking at God. Are you pondering which one might fit you the best? Or maybe you can, if you're doing a good job here, you'll come up with your own category. Like, yeah, but you didn't really talk about the really smart atheist out there, you know, or something like that. You just talk about the fundamentalist ones, and I'm, you know, and you do this. Like, that's great. That's what I want you to do. What I propose is that the good life is summed up in two words. Here's the answer. It's not on the sheet. I propose two words for the good life, the Christian good life, the transcendent good life. Simplicity and contentment. Simplicity and contentment. Simplicity and contentment. Those are the two major features of what it means to live the good life. I will say this. It comes from Christianity and even Buddhism and perhaps even Hinduism. And I guess you might as well throw the others in there too. But it also comes from the good life, the secular life. If we could be content and live simply, we would be living the good life. Unfortunately, and you knew that was coming, unfortunately, the good life is escaping us. Contentment looks like the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides still waters. He restores my soul. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Those are relational words. They're saying I'm connected to someone called the shepherd. I don't want. And and don't miss the fact that the fact that King David, who probably wrote this psalm, is saying the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Means that they actually want. Right? They they want something. And and so they're making the statement, I don't want. (laughs) Because I have God. They realize that all of the world, like us, is pressing in on them saying, you need something. You're missing something. If you don't buy that, if you don't own that, if you don't drive that, if you don't wear that, you don't put that stuff in your hair, you're missing out on something. I shall not want. So I propose that contentment and simplicity are the two major features of the good life. They're critical to good living. As a matter of fact, that is the good life according to Christianity. Now, out of the Bible, listen to the voice of Koheleth. Koheleth 
is the ancient teacher of wisdom in the Bible, better known as King Solomon, or at least proposed to be King Solomon. And it's in the book of Ecclesiastes. There's two books of wisdom. Uh, There's actually five books, but two books of wisdom which speak about the good life most precisely in the Bible, if you're interested. Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes even more so. Brilliant, timeless brilliance about what is the good life. And here's what it says right at the beginning of Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Quahelis says, All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. All things are wearisome. More than one can express. The eye is not satisfied with seeing or the ear filled with hearing. All rivers run to the sea, but the sea is never full. What is Quahelis saying here? The reason why people do not experience or live the good life is because they are never full. He says they're like rivers running to the sea, but the sea never fills up. It's the insatiability of life. Life is this insatiable whirling vortex of want and need and and, um, uncontentment, unsimplicity, non-simplicity, whatever the word is. They're never satisfied. We know this very well, don't we? When we ponder and we think, and you've come to church, and this is where you hear this sort of thing. So you can stop and kind of go, what have I been doing? Credit cards, shoes, gadgets, home decor, eating at cool restaurants, travel, tickets to shows, sports, parties, buy with one click. They're all constantly pressing us towards what's called the secular good life. But it's been, it's been maladapted. We're never full. Life is never simple, and that's what's wrong with it. We're told to never be content because somebody is trying to sell you something aren't they? That's why they don't want you to be content. Every advertisement tells you why you're incomplete as a human being. Every advertisement, beer, skin lotions, cars, trucks, beer, power tools, cell phones, greener, weed-free grass, universities, beer, celebrities, sleek bodies, silky hair, wider teeth, cleaner colons, and don't forget beer. You must have all of these things if you want to live the good life. And if you don't have it, then you are not living the good life and you're incomplete. Frantic. Be frantic. Chaos, compulsion, and competition. The three C's of the frenetic life. The insatiability of life. This is not a good life. Everything around us, though, tells you that that is the good life. I remember um, years ago, we made pilgrimage to Nebraska Furniture Mart. (laughs) It was a holy day. It was a beautiful day and a great day to go to the Cathedral of Materialism. And I had that thought because as we walked across the parking lot, and I kid you not, literally, this is the vision that is still in my head because it actually happened. Families, not just one, families were walking, holding each other's hands, swinging like they were in some sort of public service announcement. We're going to the cathedral, children. You will love all this stuff. And now I sit on it at home and I watch it on my wall. I have a sacramental world living room filled with Nebraska Furniture Mart. And all I need to do to stir you is to say the word, Ikea. (laughs) Visions of meatballs dancing in your head. You see, our global village now, now allows any of us to run at this furious pace because because in your pocket or in your purse or whatever, you have this supercomputer known as a cell phone. 
You can now watch a first-run movie or download a novel while sitting on a remote, desolate beach in a Caribbean island and can do so instantaneously. While sitting in your beach chair on a Caribbean island, you can now chat with your friends in China momentarily like that. You don't like your swimsuit? Then you can buy one right there. And someday a drone will bring it and drop it into your lap. You think I'm kidding. If you don't know a word, you just simply ask Siri. And Siri will tell you what the word means. I'm not down on any of this. This is the good life that we are all enjoying. Modernism, uh, technology, science, all of this has done great. You see, it just continues. War rages in Syria and in West Africa and in, in, in Honduras, Central America, and so forth. And what the most astounding thing that's going on right now is although there are very dangerous, violent, deadly places in the world, those countries' markets do not even show a blip of change. The buyers and the sellers have, the markets have separated from politics because the markets are being run in London and in New York. While several miles away, children are being killed, people are making money. Very intriguing, the day we live in, this time that we live in. You can pull up Karl Marx's Communist Manifesto online or look at cute kittens doing dangerous stunts. But the problem is, as one philosopher put it these days, the problem is, is with this global accelerated world, we are confused about which is more important for the good life. Marx's Manifesto or cute, dangerous stunt doing kittens. And you're like, no, wait. I know the difference between whatever his name's manifesto is and cute kittens. But the philosopher says, we have the means, but we have no end. Because when you want to sit around and ask the question, which one is more important for living the good life, Karl Marx's Communist Manifesto or watching cute kittens on on YouTube? And you say, like, is this a trick question? Because I like kittens. And you're like, Karl Marx's manifesto, what's that got to do with the good life? Didn't that thing fail? To put it in Jesus' words, it's as though we're living by bread alone. One shall not live by bread alone, but we are certainly living by bread alone a very flat, thin, horizontal existence, only, only accelerated by globalization and technology and science. And we all know it's good. Moreover, we're happy with it. John Kenneth Galbraith in The Affluent Society, a classic book in sociology, Galbraith says he compares our modern consumer insatiability with the squirrel running in the round cage. And in good Lakeland fashion, I thought, maybe we can get a huge squirrel cage up here, you know, and get some dude running in it, you know, and like as a sermon prop. And, and then I realized how insane that would be, and who could we ever get to do that? And so I gave up on it. But I thought it would really be a fun uh, word picture at some outrageous expense. Galbraith is saying, he says this, among the many, many models of the good society, no one has yet urged the squirrel cage. He says so dryly. And yet, 
That's where we're at. This is what I call normalcy anxiety, or what 45 years ago one sociologist called hurry sickness. Hurry sickness looks like that thing when you're standing in the grocery store and you're looking at all the checkout lanes and you're counting the number of people in each lane trying to think, did I get in the fastest lane or not? And then you run into a competition and you begin to win. I'm losing or I'm winning. Oh no, she is getting through there faster than I am. And then what happens? An anxiety and an anger builds inside of you for no good reason. I had one man years ago who had a gambling addiction, nearly lost his house and everything. And he told me this. He said, you know, in uh, Gamblers Anonymous, he says that speeding is an addiction. And it looks like this, that need to want to get in front of the next car in front of you. He says, we talk about that in GA. I thought, gulp, that might be me. In his book, Aldous Huxley's, Aldous Huxley's book, The Doors of Perception, he says this, and I put this quote on there because it's a thick one. He says this. Um, Most men and women lead lives at the worst so painful, at the best so monotonous, poor, and limited that the urge to escape, the longing to transcend themselves, if only for a few moments, is and always has been one of the principal appetites of the soul. Huxley, one of the primary atheist philosophers of the 20th century, and remember Brave New World that he wrote that you had to read in eighth grade, Brave New World? He looked into the near future, our time right now today, and he believed, Huxley said, Huxley said, all societies will be so repulsed, I'm quoting, they will be so repulsed by their good lives that they will need to take frequent chemical vacations to escape their intolerable surroundings. Frequent chemical vacations. In other words, you're going to have to get stoned in the future, Huxley believed, and all of Colorado said amen. (laughs) What Huxley didn't realize is that the drug of choice is a soft blue glow in every living room at night. Lulliness, into numbness and complacency. Flat living, bread alone. Lori and I like to watch little simple mystery shows, you know, murder mysteries. I'll just say it, throwing my wife under the bus for the umpteenth time. Her favorite show used to be Murder, She Wrote. I'm just saying. And I watched it too, and it's my favorite show as well. Okay, there, I said it. I can now go to therapy group. (laughs) But we like mystery shows, and there's plenty of them out there these days about whether it's CSI or some sort of, you know, ancient bones or whatever it is, all these sort of mystery shows. And and, um, you kind of get it. It's the same plot. I think I have most of them figured out by the amount of uh, screen time that the guilty party gets, you know, because it's about three and a half minutes or 30 seconds or whatever it is. And then you're like, yeah, they did it. And it doesn't even matter what the content is. Just give me the screen time and I got to figure it out. So murder mysteries kind of get a little boring. And you can tell after the first season or so that they begin to up the ante. And what they up the ante with is sex. 
And it's always a wild, passionate sex because they only have 43 minutes. And so they have to have people be passionate and, and violent almost because it's always sort of a violent. Everybody starts ripping each other's clothes off and this sort of thing. And the sex happens really, really quick. And we all know that sex is supposed to take a long time. At least it's supposed to. And, and so what, that's what they've defaulted to. And so Lori and I, after a season or two, just finally had to say, like, we just can't watch this anymore. It's too raunchy. I feel like it's destroying my soul. So the last few weeks, I said, Lori, we just have to watch some good movies. So we watched Rudy, and we watched Hoosiers, and last night we watched Brooklyn. Like, I just need something that doesn't slime me. And when I ask around here, like, hey, what are you guys watching? Because I need a new show. They'll say, like, well, we're watching Black is the New Orange or Game of Thrones. And then they always kind of look at me with that pastor look and go, it's kind of raunchy. <laughs> but they keep watching it. Now, I know this kind of stand, sounds like standard religious moralism. Basically, don't have any fun, you know, if you're going to be a Christian. So ignore the good life and don't watch television. It's a drug and all the rest of this. And there's some truth to that. But like all... Uh, We live in an entire world and society of pornography. And I don't mean that in the sexual sense. I mean everything is a cheap substitute for real intimacy and relationship. The problem with pornography in in particular, actually what it does is it erodes your ability to enjoy real sex. And materialism erodes your ability to enjoy real good life. This insatiability, this drive, this compulsion, this chaos, this competition keeps us from actually being present. As sociologists tell us, what they found out about suburban children is that they don't know what to do. And the constant question in the house is, what do I have to do next? Where do I have to be? What do I have to go to? What's our next appointment? What they found out about kids in the inner city is they just play. They figured out how to use the bus, how to go to the library, how how to get on, um, how to go to the, the local market, how to just hang out in the backyard. And we say, oh, those poor children. Who's worse off? All of this that I've been quoting you that sounds like religious stodginess, prudishness, everything I'm telling you is coming from secular, modern philosophers. Philosophers these days think there's something off balance and something missing in our world today. It is missing transcendence, the vertical. Here's one philosopher. He says this. Parched for meaning. This is on your sheet, I believe. The last one. Parched for meaning. We then project the power to give meaning onto the finite goods that surround us. The muscle tone of bodies. Steamy sex. Loads of money. Success in work. Fame, family, or nation. We look for meaning in finite things, says Miroslav Volf. What should we do then to get the good life? Well, you might think after this critique that I should say, well, well, we all have to become monks. We've got to swim for our lives, flee this world, leave it, go off, leave, go live in the desert. Or you might think like, well, we all need to become Amish. We need to start acting strange and dress weird and step out of society and try not to drive anything. Matter of fact, you know, if we wanted to become Amish, all we have to do is like, is just freeze time right now, right now in 2016. And so like 200 years from now, people say like, those are those weird people walking around with that little chunk of plastic metal glass thingy in their pocket. Pfft. What's that? 
but I'm not saying escape the world. Jesus never taught escapism. Remember, there's healing and prayer at the same time, horizontal and vertical all at the same time for Jesus. Jesus never taught escapism. He said, you are a light in a dark place. You are salt in a tasteless world. You are the good tree producing good fruit. And we all know a tree has to be in the right soil. You get good soil, you get good tree, you get good fruit. What soil are you in is what Jesus is asking. Are you salty? Are you light? Is there anything attractive about you? And what is he talking about that's attractive? Is there anything transcendent beyond the ordinary about you? Or in our vernacular, do you look like Jesus? How do we get the good life? Well, it's more than teaching. Listen to some preacher. The good life is more art than it is seminar. It takes a lifetime to acquire, and it takes full attention, or at least good moments of attention. It's something that comes out of your soul, and it takes soul work. It's not a put-on. The good life is the spiritual eyesight to keep understanding how life works and then be content in any circumstance. To understand how life works and be content in any circumstance. The good life is found in a person in a relationship with Jesus who said, I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. Come to me, all you who are weary, and I'll give you rest. I am the good shepherd. I came that may have life and have it abundantly. All of those very common words about a transcendent relationship with Jesus. So, brothers and sisters, we cannot go get Jesus this afternoon. You cannot pray a prayer and get Jesus. You may get some sort of doctrine or dogma or some sort of creedal truth, a propositional truth that you can own and say, I, I believe that. But will you sense it? Will you live it? Will your thoughts be changed? Will, or will you simply be one of these secular Christians, these thin religious people who simply try to rearrange their life but ever, can't ever quite get any traction? You see, I, I'm a Christian because I was raised in America in a Christian home. And we all understand that's why most of us are Christians because it's the culture we, we grew up in. I'm not Hindu or Buddhist or Jewish or Muslim. I've looked at those other religions. It's part of my job. And, and what I found is that I still like Christianity. It's not that the other religions are bad, I don't think, but I love the idea of a relationship with the divine. And I don't see that in the other ones. I see an escape from materialism. I see a submission to a, a stern God. I see something that's ethnic and traditional. But I do not see a relationship. And so I'll remain a Christian as much as I can. Because as one author said, he said, my faith is my bread. Bread of life. I don't really have a way to tell this to you except I keep coming back to this one story that I've now read. I think this is about the fifth time over two decades that I've told it to you. And perhaps Garrett and some others have said it as well. But I give you this story here at the end. And this is the best way I know how to describe the good life and why it's more art than it ever is seminar or workshop or a three-ring binder. The state-run convalescence hospital is not a pleasant place. 
It's large, understaffed, overfilled with senile and helpless, lonely people who are waiting to die. On the brightest of days, it seems dark inside. It smells of sickness and stale urine. And I went there once or twice a week for four years, but I never wanted to go there. I always left with a sense of relief. It's not the kind of place one gets used to. On this particular day, I was walking in a hallway that I had not visited before, looking in vain for a few who were alive enough to receive a flower and a few words of encouragement. And this hallway seemed to contain some of the worst cases, strapped onto carts or into wheelchairs and looking completely helpless. As I neared the end of the hallway, I saw an old woman strapped up in a wheelchair. Her face was absolutely a horror. The empty stare, the white pupils of her eyes told me she was blind. The large hearing aid over one ear told me she was almost deaf. And one side of her face was being eaten by cancer. There was a discolored and running sore covering part of one cheek, and it had pushed her nose to one side, dropping one eye, and distorted her jaw so that what should have been the corner of her mouth was the bottom of her mouth, and so consequently, she drooled constantly. I was told later that when new nurses arrived, the supervisor would send them to feed this woman, thinking that if they could stand the sight, they could stand anything in the building. I also learned later that this woman was 89 years old and that she had been here bedridden, blind, nearly deaf, and alone for 25 years. This was Mabel. I don't know why I spoke to her. She looked less likely to respond than most of the people I saw in that hallway. But I put a, happy, I put a, a flower in her hand and said, here's a, a flower for you. Happy Mother's Day. She held the flower up to her face and tried to smell it. And then she spoke. And to much of my surprise, her words, although somewhat garbled because of her deformity, were obviously produced by a clear mind. And she said, thank you. It's lovely. But can I give it to someone else? I can't see it, you know. I'm blind. I said, of course, and I pushed her in her chair back down the hallway to a place where I thought I could find some alert patients, and I found one, and I stopped the chair, and Mabel held out the flower and said, here, this is from Jesus. Mabel and I became friends over the next few weeks, and I went to see her once or twice a week for the next three years. Her first words to me were usually an offer of hard candy from a tissue box near her bed. Some days I would read to her from the Bible, and often when I would pause, she would continue reciting the passage from memory, word for word. On other days, I would take a book of hymns and sing with her, and she would know all the words of the old songs. For Mabel, these were not merely exercises in memory. She would often stop in mid-hymn and make a brief comment about a lyric that she considered particularly relevant to her own situation. I never heard her speak of loneliness or pain except in the stress she placed on certain lines in certain hymns. During one hectic week, I was frustrated because my mind seemed to be pulled in ten directions at once with all the things I had to think about. The question occurred to me, what does Mabel think about hour after hour, day after day, week after week, not even able to know if it's day or night? And so I went to ask, I went to ask her, Mabel, what do you think about when you're lying here? And she said, I think about my Jesus. 
I sat there and I thought for a moment about how difficult it is for me thinking of Jesus for even five minutes. And I asked her, what do you think about Jesus? I think about how good he's been to me. He's been awfully good to me in my life, you know. I'm one of those kind who are mostly satisfied. Lots of folks wouldn't care much for what I think. Lots of folks would think I'm kind of old-fashioned, but I don't care. I'd rather have Jesus. He's all the world to me. And then Mabel began to sing an old hymn, Jesus is all the world to me, my life, my joy, my all. He is my strength from day to day, and without him I would fall. When I am sad, to him I go. No other can cheer me so. When I am sad, he makes me glad. He's my friend. I hate to dissect a story, you know, and lose its power, but there are features to Mabel that she took a lifetime to build. One, she knew her Bible. Two, she had a book of hymns in her head. She could sing, and she applied it to every pain and everything that went on in her life. She lived it. She thought Jesus was her friend, and she didn't mean that in some cheap way not in her condition. I wonder about us. I wonder about us as we live this good life that we have, so good, so good in our times. We have everything. But do we know why? And can we enjoy it? Would the servers come forward? We wrap things up today after communion with the benediction, a proclamation to send us out. But for right now, we talk about bread and a cup. Why did Jesus choose bread and a cup to symbolize his presence? Very horizontal, earthly, ordinary, mundane things like bread reinterpreted into a transcendent, vertical, mystical moment. That's why, we, that's why we have these symbols of bread and a cup. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this very real, earthly, common bread... And drink this very real common cup. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There it is. Common bread with the divine. And all of us who participate in it, it is just simple bread and a simple juice. All of us who participate in it say, I am more than just bread and juice. I'm a saint a sacramental saint. Would you stand with me, please, and as we pray the way Jesus taught us to pray? And I don't mean recite. I mean pray. Join me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Save us from the time of trial. And deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen. And therefore, everyone, we proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. 
Christ will come again. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Alleluia. The gifts of God for the people of God. Each day, may Jesus Christ be as real to us as this food and drink is right now. Oh, Lord, you've fed us with spiritual food. We recognize that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. May we embrace this good life that you've given us. May we embrace the good life that comes at us from the world. May we have the eyes to see and the ears to hear and know who we belong to, the good shepherd. We all said, amen. Well, would you stand with me, please? And we'll end with the benediction from the Celtic uh, daily prayer book. But let me just say one thing. I know you're thinking like, he didn't really tell us how to get the good life other than contentment and simplicity, and I recognize that. But let me just give you one small exercise. The Royals play their first game tonight at 737. And there's an NCAA tournament championship game coming up. And my son's got his lacrosse game this afternoon. And you probably have a flag football thing to go to or a soccer game or, or all sorts of things. You know, sports is a playing out philosophically of life and death. You know that? Except nobody asked to die, and that makes it nice. But what I'd like for you to do is if you get to go to the game or you get to watch it on television and you see the blue sky and you see the green grass and you hear the throbbing loud music and the hot dogs racing around the track and all of that sort of thing. And you look around and you see the faces of tens of thousands of strangers <laughs> that we call fans. Just simply do this one change. Just say, isn't it good, God? Isn't it good, God? Turn it into a prayer. You see, we don't want to step out of our ordinary life. We simply want to recognize that God is present. So as you're out doing your gardening or mowing the grass or whatever you're doing, you look at the trees and the flowers and there are all the birds and the rest of the stuff. And even people at the mall just say, isn't it good, God? And turn it into a prayer. That's the challenge. Well, let's end with this um, Celtic blessing. And it has us cross ourselves at the end because we belong to the cross especially on this Sunday after Easter. And uh, you do that top to bottom, left to right, by the way. We just rip off things from the Catholics, you know, whenever we need something. We just do that. It's just kind of... Join me. May the peace of the Lord Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness, protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into our doors in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace, everyone.